So our reading this morning is from Second Samuel. It's going to be oh, sorry, so. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 11. So we're continuing our Advent series um, on the woman in the lineage of Jesus. And today is going to be the story of David and Bathsheba. So that's Second Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be reading verse 1 to 5 and then picking up again in verse 26. This is God's word. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servant, and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabiah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And then on to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you once more that we, your people, are able to gather here this morning. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would pour out your Spirit in this place. God, that our eyes would be lifted towards you and your throne. Father, we thank you for your word and the gift that it is to us and how we here in Northern Ireland and in the West, God, that we so freely have access to it. So, Father, I just pray now that you would anoint Alan with your spirit, God, that what he has prepared for for the service today, Lord, that you would just empower that with with your spirit, and, Lord, that we as your people would, would see you on your throne and see you glorified. Lord, that we would see ourselves in this story. Lord, that we would know that we, too, as as David have done, that we too have sinned, and Lord, we've fallen short of the glory of God, and Father, help us at this Christmas time just to to be thankful, Lord, that you, you condescended, and you humbled yourself, and Lord, you sent Jesus into this world to be a servant, and Lord, he didn't just stay a baby, but he grew to be a man, and lived a perfect life, and Father, he died a, de- a death on the cross to save us from our sins, and Lord, he is once more coming in glory as a king and to come and restore his kingdom here. So, Father, just help us at this time as we look forward to Christmas, God, to be a people of hope. And, Lord, that we would share that hope with our family and our friends. That, Father, that you would just empower us through your word to preach your gospel. And, Lord, that that your message of salvation would go forth in, in this building this morning and in our town and in our country. So, Father, we just thank you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Tamar's circumstances and the presence of immorality in her story would have us all believe 
that she would not be celebrated by scripture. And yet Tamar was given the honor of being the first woman included in Jesus' line. The pain, loss and sin that she was subjected to would ultimately be redeemed by the Messiah in her family tree. Rahab, out of all the people in Jericho, who would suspect that Rahab the harlot would be the one to fear the Lord and keep the Israelite spies safe? This woman was unassuming and had nothing to gain from helping the spies, yet she, out of all the people in the city, was the one to protect them and trust the Lord's strength. Ruth. Ruth had the opportunity to rebuild her life after her husband died. Her mother-in-law Naomi gave Ruth permission to return to her home family. Rather than return to her hometown, Ruth was steadfast in her love for Naomi. She sacrificed a life that she knew for a life of uncertainty. Bathsheba. We don't know much about Bathsheba, but she could not have known that she would become part of the lineage of the Messiah. Even if it was because of the circumstances outside of her own control, Bathsheba was a faithful wife who caught the eye of the king. What an unexpected thing for the Messiah to come from a lineage of broken people with broken stories and ultimately to be given life by a virgin girl who was favoured by God. These women are unlikely people to be included in Jesus' lineage. Some are young, some are widows, some are tied to people who have committed very sinful acts. These stories are all about grace and in reading them there's an invitation to us to say that our story matters. There is a scarlet thread that runs all the way through the Bible and it's a scarlet thread of grace. Good morning. <clears throat> I'm glad that eventually I figured out what time the service started. I'm not sure what Marcus has told you. Um, I could have said that uh, I decided I would skip the first few songs because I knew he wasn't going to sing my favourite Christmas carol. But I don't know what the, I don't know what he was going to sing. Probably didn't, did you? I don't know. Uh, the reality, in case you're wondering why I walked, did you tell him? Yeah, you're just protecting me. Yeah, thank, thank you. The reality is that I had in my head that's 10 o'clock service, and I had my sort of schedule all mapped out um, to be here in time for a 10 o'clock start. It is about 10 o'clock now anyway, isn't it? So uh, that, that, was, that was okay. Um, but then it suddenly dawned on me just before 9 o'clock, oh, it's half nine, and uh, I needed petrol in my car and all this kind of stuff. So that's what I get for not filling up on Saturday, isn't it? And the Sabbatarians will say, amen, and you shouldn't. <coughs> so we're, <coughs> we're coming to this, uh, this fourth of the, the characters, the Old Testament uh, women who are uh, part of the ancestry of Jesus. I came across a little thing um, just maybe a, a, a several weeks ago. It was a fascinating little piece uh, about um, ancestors and generations. Let me read it to you, okay? Um, you get a wee bit lost in the maths of all of this. In order to be born, you needed two parents, four grandparents, eight grandparents, eight great, eight great grandparents, 16 second great-grandparents. I never knew there was such a thing as second great-grandparents, but there you go. 
32 third-great-grandparents, 64 fourth-great-grandparents, 128 fifth-great-grandparents, 256 sixth-great-grandparents, 512 seventh-great-grandparents, 1,024 eighth-great-grandparents, and then just one more, 2,048 ninth-great-grandparents. And it said this, summing it up, it said, for you to be born today from 12 previous generations you needed a total sum of 4,094 ancestors over the last 400 years. And then they say, think for a moment. How many struggles, how many battles, how many difficulties, how much sadness, how much happiness, how many love stories, how many expressions of hope for the future did your ancestors have to undergo for you to exist in this present moment. It's a fascinating thought, isn't it? And of course, it's, it's in that sort of way that Matthew begins his telling of the story of Jesus, the ancestors of Jesus. It's a selection. Uh, he doesn't give us all of the generations, but he gives us um, just over 40 different generations and ancestors of Jesus. There are patriarchs and there are kings. There are good people, like Boaz, for example, and there are evil people, like King Manasseh or King Ammon. There are scandals, and there are surprises. And as you've been reflecting over the past several weeks, um, over this, this, the course of this month or so, there are these four women. Five, actually, because there's Mary, and I think Mary's what you're going to be thinking about on Thursday night at the, at the carol service. But there's Tamar. We've looked at some, we looked at, at the story of Tamar um, three weeks ago. Tamar and that a very sordid story of how um, she, uh, she, she managed to get her father-in-law to father a, a child with her, or twins with her. Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho. Ruth from Moab, um, a young widow who comes back to live in Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. And then Bathsheba. And actually, if you look carefully at the text in Matthew, you'll see that Matthew doesn't give her her name. He simply calls her the wife of Uriah. And you wonder why. And some people think, well, maybe Matthew didn't really like her. Uh, and that's why he didn't want to mention her name. And I don't know what his motivation was as, as he was led to, to record that genealogy. But one of the things that's very clear is that the fact, the fact that he mentions her and describes her as the wife of Uriah means that we cannot get away from this reminder of the circumstances into which Bathsheba and David's son Solomon was born. Now, all of these stories, uh, the, the stories of all of these women have something about them that causes us to pause and wonder what's going on. And of course, that's true of Mary, isn't it? And people are, you know, as Matthew comes to talk to us about Mary and the miraculous conception of Jesus, um, as he comes to talk about that, he's kind of prepared the way by saying, well, actually, there have been several stories that puzzle us and make you raise your eyebrows and think, what's going on here all the way along? And then 
there's that, there's that other thing that I mentioned this. I, I sort of I, I couldn't remember the exact quotation. I've subsequently found it, but I mentioned this three weeks ago, and it comes from a it comes from a guy called Sam Albury, and he said Matthew's genealogy includes the outcast, scandalous, and foreigner, and then this, the family Jesus came from, anticipates the family he has come for. Get that? The family Jesus came from anticipates the family he came for, he has come for. So today we're going to think about this story of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and David. And two words really, very simply, uh, for you to, to take away from this story. In the first place, it's a story of shame, but in the second place, it's a story of grace. It's a story of shame and it's a story of grace. And that makes it a story of hope, doesn't it, for us? As we think about that reality that the family that Jesus came from is a, a, a preview of the family that Jesus came for, we've got hope. Because if God is able to get involved in a situation like the situation of that story of, of Bathsheba and David, then he's able to be involved in our stories as well. Story of shame. Let me give you a number of, let's just, we'll walk through the story, I'll give you a number of headings just to hold it all together. The first, first thing I want you to think about in, in the shame part of the story is the circumstances. And there's several things to say about this. The first one is, and you'll notice this in the text, that um, it was springtime uh, when the kings went to battle. That's what kings normally did at this time of year. Now, Sometimes people will look at that and say, aha, if David had been doing what kings do, uh, this would never have happened. Now, certainly if David had been out leading the troops in battle against the city of Rabbah, this would not have happened. But I think we need to be careful not to be too quick to blame David for this. David does a lot of terrible things in this chapter, just absolutely awful things in this chapter. But I'm not sure he was necessarily wrong not to go to battle. Sometimes it was okay for the king to delegate uh, the, the leading of the army to somebody else. In David's case, it was Joab. Um, he'd already done it. If you look back at chapter 10, verse 4, you'd seen that he'd already sent Joab to deal with the Ammonites. So maybe it's not entirely unusual that, that David stays back and sends Joab to the city of Rabbah. But nonetheless, whatever his motivations were, I think there's, there's considerable irony between what's happening in verse 1 and what happens in the rest of the story. It's okay, David, to send Joab. You trust him. He's your military leader. You trust him and you send him out. It's okay to send him out. But the reason to send him out is not so that you stay back and commit adultery with the wife of one of your best soldiers. It may have been fine if David had had other pressing things that he needed to do uh, in terms of the kingdom, but he wasn't meant to stay at home and do what he did. Second thing about the circumstances, it was it was late one afternoon or into the evening. There's there's a you, it, it could be uh, just towards the the end of the afternoon after David's had his maybe his afternoon siesta. Uh, it could be a little later on in the evening, but but it's a it's a quiet time of the day. And there's an idle moment. And you notice the way it's described is that in the late afternoon, David gets up and he goes for a walk. He walks around the roof of his palace. 
uh, the, palace in, the palace in which David lived in Jerusalem was probably the highest residence of the city. The temple would have been higher, but it was probably the highest residence of the city. So you get this idea of a king, and he's out there, and he's surveying his city. Um, he's out there just walking around, a little bit of relaxation. Now, there's no harm <clears throat> in a little bit of relaxation, and I would imagine if you were to have conversations with folk um, today and say, what are you really looking forward to over Christmas? Of course, people give you the spiritual answer. They say, well, I'm really looking forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> and others would give you the, the sort of um, the generous answer and say, I'm really looking forward to see the joy on the faces of the people for all, the, all those wonderful presents that I've bought them. And some of you might just say, you know, I'm just looking forward to have a bit of a rest. It's been a busy old year. It's been a tough old year. And I'm just looking forward to a little bit of relaxation. Nothing wrong with, with a little bit of relaxation. But it was during this unguarded moment of leisure that David saw his neighbor who was bathing. And I think one of the things we need to, to note from this, we'll just notice, notice it, you can take it, you can apply it to yourself, is that temptation can easily strike in our unguarded moments of leisure. Maybe it's the time of the day, the late evening. Everyone else has gone off to bed. Maybe it is during a holiday season. Temptation can strike during unguarded moments of leisure. It can strike at other times, of course. But we need to make sure that we're careful about those, those moments of relaxation. And the third element of the story, or the third element of the circumstances is that there was a woman bathing, on, bathing in sight of the roof. And, you know, just as we wonder, well, what was David doing in Jerusalem instead of being in Rabbah? Maybe some of us read that and think, well, what, why on earth was she out bathing in view of the palace? Well, you know, it was the only building, probably the only residence that was higher than, than, than her house. Um, and, and we kind of wonder what, what, she was, what she was doing. Did she not realize this kind of thing might happen? Now, it seems, according to verse 4, it seems to have been part of her ritual purification. But believe it or not, and you may have come across some of this, there, there are several scholars down through the years, um, and, including Kenneth Bailey, who's a, a, who was a very reputable New Testament scholar, who've actually got a very, very poor view of Bathsheba. And some of the scholars look at Bathsheba and think, oh, she was, she was manipulative. She knew what she was doing. She was trying to catch David's eye. She knew very well what she was doing. But I want you to notice that the Bible does not attribute any kind of motivation at all to Bathsheba, let alone blame. And I think it's really important to say this. The blame that the text attributes, both in uh, the, the, the telling of it in Second Samuel <clears throat> and also in Psalm 51, which we'll refer to later on, in the telling of it and the reflection on it in Psalm 51, the blame is very firmly placed with David. And we need to make sure that we, we understand that. And I think maybe particularly those of us who are men need to understand that, that the blame is there with David. Because the third thing, or the, or the second thing rather, after, after the circumstances, the second thing to notice is, that, is the choice that David makes. So there's a particular set of circumstances, but 
those circumstances could have existed and David could have made a different choice. David could have turned away and walked back in his palace and said, better not stay out here. But if you look at verse 3, it says there, David sent someone to find out about her. Just a moment. And, and this choice that he makes, and you think, goodness, David, if you'd taken that moment and you'd thought about it and you'd decided to turn and get back inside the palace, this whole story would have been so different, wouldn't it? Because there's a terrible mess that's about to unfold here. And David could have changed the destiny of this story because of the choice that he made. But he makes inquiries. He says, oh, I wonder who she is. He notices her and decides to try to find out a little bit more about her. Turns out she's the wife of Uriah. Uriah was one of David's best soldiers. And when we meet him, <clears throat> excuse me, when we meet him in this story, we discover the nobility of the man. If you push back a little bit into her family, <clears throat> you discover that she's the daughter of a man called Eliam. And Eliam was part of a, of a band of men who were called David's mighty men. So her dad was a great soldier for David. Her husband was a great soldier for David. And actually, her grandfather was also significant. His name was Ahithophel. You maybe never heard of Ahithophel, but Ahithophel was actually David's advisor. So David inquires about her. He discovers who she is, sends for her, and Bathsheba would have had very little op option to refuse. How, what's she going to do? Refuse the king? How is she going to do that? And so he brings her to his palace. He sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. And what you've got happening here is that David is allowing the, the, the opportunity of a moment to outweigh the strength of his integrity. It's the opportunity of a moment outweighs the strength of his integrity. You know, we don't have to do everything that our circumstances present to us. You think of Joseph, um, story back in, in the book of Genesis, where Joseph's in Egypt and he has a woman, uh, the wife of his boss, who's trying to seduce him. And Joseph says, hey, I, I'm, I'm not gonna be seen, I'm not gonna be seen in the house with her, I can't. He makes a choice, he demonstrates his integrity, and by the way, he suffers for his integrity. David allows his integrity to be sacrificed on the altar of a moment of pleasure and sin. Then there's a cover-up. So there's circumstances, there's a choice, and there's a cover-up because the story goes from bad to worse. News comes back that Bathsheba is pregnant and David goes into cover-up mode. And his first plan, <clears throat> we didn't read it this morning, but you can read it in the, in the rest of the chapter. His first plan is to get Uriah to come home from the battle and sleep with his wife. You know, a baby would be born. <clears throat> a few people might have wondered about the exact timing of everything. But, you know, hopefully from David's point of view, everybody would say, oh, isn't that really nice? You know, there's Uriah, got to come home, spend a, a, you know, a night with his wife. And here's a little war baby has been born. You know, some, something like that. That was what David was hoping. But in spite of getting Uriah drunk, David couldn't get Uriah to go back to sleep with Bathsheba. And Uriah's reasons had to do with his co the fact that his colleagues were sleeping in the open while, while they were engaged in war. And the Ark of the Covenant 
That symbol of the presence of God was not in its resting place. You see, even though David had called Uriah back from the battle, Uriah was still on duty. Isn't that interesting? What a contrast with David. That David's wandering about in the palace, but he's not on duty, is he? He's in this moment of unguarded leisure, which is going to lead to his, which is going to lead to his downfall. And there's such a striking contrast between the attitudes and the commitments of these two men. And when you get to verse 14, and David realizes that his first plan hasn't worked, his first, his first attempted cover-up hasn't worked, the plot takes a terrible twist because David then says, we really need to get Uriah out of the way. So he sends him back to the front with a letter that details David's plans to have him killed. I, that is so callous. Do you know, it's just, you read that, pause on it for a moment. It's, it is so callous, isn't it? You know, you give the man a letter. He doesn't know what's in the letter. He hands the letter to his commanding officer, put Uriah in the front of the battle, and, you know, Joab does it. And, and he's actually, I mean, Uriah, this honorable man, is actually going back out to the battlefront, and he's carrying his own death warrant with him, and he doesn't even know. And he dies in battle. And David, very hypocritically, says, Ah, oh, well, don't worry too much about it, Joab. These things happen. You know, I think sometimes when we read these kind of stories, these, these stories in the Bible, <clears throat> they, they happened so long ago, and they happened so far away, that, that we sort of say, Oh, wow, that's quite a dramatic story, isn't it? And, and somehow, I, I don't think we quite get the horror of, of some of these stories. I mean, if this, if this was happening in Banbridge... Can you imagine? You know, I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an affair and there's a, a, a cover-up of murdering the husband. Do, do you know that the, these, something like that, it, those kind of things make the news. They massively make the news. David has failed terribly. And here he is. He's the man of God's choosing. He's the king. He's this musician who's associated with so many of the psalms of praise. He's an ancestor of Jesus, the Messiah. And this is where he ends up because of this moment of unguarded carelessness to lead to some, that led to some very dark deeds. You know, this is a terrible failure on the part of David. Wasn't the only one. David, is, David was a fallible person. And maybe we need to take on board something very important. And we need to say that if someone like David could fall into sin like this, any one of us could fall in ways that maybe we wouldn't even imagine. Some of you may not like that thought. Some of you bristle at that, don't you? A little bit. Oh, I, I would never do anything. Well, you may not do anything quite like what David does. But there may be things that you would say in the cold light of day, like sitting here now, you would say, oh, I'd never do that. But you just don't know, do you? And we really do need to come to terms, I think, sometimes with the potential that there is in our own hearts. And it's only when we realize the dark side of our own hearts that we can genuinely and honestly say, there but for the grace of God go I. You know, if you stop reading before the last sentence of verse 27, just have a look down at verse 27. If you stop reading before that last sentence, it would look as though David had got away with it. Here's what it says. 
After the time of mourning was over, David had her, Bathsheba, brought to his own house, <clears throat> and she became his wife and bore him a son. And you wonder, would some people even have thought, oh, was it, isn't that kind of noble? You know, his, his, uh, her husband has been killed in battle fighting for David's cause. And, you know, here's David. He's not going to let this woman just be a vulnerable widow. He's going to bring her home and look after her. Maybe it, some people would have thought like that. Here he is taking responsibility for this, this poor widow. But, you know, there must have been some people who knew, weren't there? The person who, who went and, and brought Bathsheba to the palace. There must have been people who saw Bathsheba leaving the palace. There were people who knew, but they weren't going to say anything. But yet it looks as though David has got away with it. But it says this in the final sentence. But the thing <clears throat> that David had done displeased the Lord. You know, it's always, think, wow, David, we don't like this. We, we think this is a terrible story. But, well, you've got away with it. We wish you hadn't. Well, actually, he hasn't. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God knew. God had an opinion on the matter. Now, sometimes we forget that, don't we? We, we, we think of sin as horizontal things, you know, that where we offend other people or wrong other people. But the Lord knows the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then there's confrontation. And I don't know how long David would have gone on with the pretense if God had not sent Nathan. You know, we look at Psalm 51, and we'll talk about Psalm 51 in a moment. <clears throat> but we look at Psalm 51 and say, ah, oh, you see, there he is, you know. Um, he, re he repents. He, he, he doesn't repent right away. There's a bit of time goes by before he repents. It's only when Nathan, the prophet, is sent by God, it's only then <clears throat> that he repents. And yet you wonder what was going on in his mind. I guess that's where Psalm 32 comes in. And the, 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 his bones that are crushed and the, 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 the deep anxiety that he's living with with that sense of guilt because he knew what he had done. And Nathan comes. He doesn't have an easy job. He had to speak truth, with, speak truth to power, as we say. <clears throat> you, know, think again, you think again of, of, of Nathan's position. How was David going to react to this? Nathan goes and he says, I'm going to have to confront David with a sin. How, how, is, how is David going to react? Is he going to kill me as well? What if he gets angry? And he certainly did get angry. But Nathan had been really clever, and he spun out this little story. Many of you will be familiar with it. It comes in, the, in, in, the, in, tw in chapter 12. A little story about a family who had a pet lamb. <clears throat> and one day their rich neighbor, who had plenty of animals, took the lamb and killed it to provide dinner for a guest who just landed in on it. They didn't need to. He had plenty of flocks. He had plenty of herds. He had no need to do what he did, but yet that's what he did. He took the lamb. And for a rich and powerful person to do that to his poor neighbor and his family was a blazing injustice. And you get David and he says, right, you tell me who that was because that person who did that is going to pay with his life. And he'll restore the lamb four times, but he'll also pay with his life. And David is greatly angered against this man. 
And now Nathan has David exactly where he wants him. And he says to him these very simple words, David, you are that man. And the penny drops. And David has been caught in his own trap. God had given David so much, given him so many things. And he would have given him even more. And yet David has despised the word of God and has done evil in his sight. You know, there's going to be consequences from here. The the child that would eventually be born uh, would die. David would have trouble in his own family. And in fact, I think when you study the life of David, you realize that that from this point on, David's life is on a a downward trajectory. And I think by the time you get to the end of David's story, um, you, you, you realize he's, he, he's, a, he's a feeble man. Just earlier this year, I was teaching a class of uh, students on, on, over Zoom. They were, they were in Serbia. I was at home. Um, in a, in a little, they were in a little Bible college in, in Serbia. And we were doing Second Samuel. And I, was, I, I guess I look back on it, and I think, goodness, I'm a little bit surprised. Because by the time we'd finished the book of Second Samuel, I thought, David, look how weak he is. Look how pathetic he is. That's the, that's the fullness of David's story. And it's this point that marks the beginning of David's decline. There are consequences. And you know, the problem with sin is that you cannot turn back the clock. I'm sure most of us, not all of us, would love to be able to go back in time and undo some of the things that we did right? But you can't. You can't turn back the clock and undo what you have done or make different choices. But you know what? If you cannot turn back the clock, you need to know that there is mercy. I think one of the things you notice about our culture, um, the way it has evolved, and not least with social media, um, you know the kind of thing where somebody trolls back and says, oh, here's, here's, here's a, a sports player. And, and you know what? When he was 12, he had a Twitter account, and he, and he, he told a joke uh, that, it was, that was politically incorrect. You know? and, and then the guy who's maybe now 25 or something like that, you know, he's punished for, for what happened all those years ago. And, and there are people who, who lose their credibility. And, and the problem with, with, with much of the judgmentalism that goes on in our culture is that when somebody has fallen, there is no way back. What a contrast with the gospel. And what a contrast even with this story and the depths of depravity that we've just seen in this story. Because it's not just a story of shame, it's a story of grace. And there's an amazing portrayal of grace and mercy that comes in Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51 would be a whole other sermon, but it's a psalm for anyone who's ever needed mercy. It's a psalm for anyone who's ever done anything that they're ashamed of. And I find that when I read the psalms, I think sometimes, sometimes there are psalms and they're good news for good people. You know, blessed is the man who has clean hands and who may ascend the hill of the Lord, or who has clean hands and, and doesn't swear falsely and so on and so on. I think, yeah, that's all very well, but what happens if your hands are not clean? What happens if you have sinned? Psalm 51 is actually good news for people who've got things that they're ashamed of, people who are faced with the reality of their fallenness. 
And it tells us why we need mercy. It tells us what mercy does and how it changes, how it changes us. Let me give you three things about this. And you can read the psalm at some point if you want. Um, but uh, the three things I want that just to notice about the psalm without reading it all now is, number one, mercy. Mercy makes us clean when we have been soiled. Mercy makes us clean when we have been soiled. Verse 2, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. That's amazing, isn't it? David saying this, Lord, if, if you make me clean, then I will be clean. Mercy makes us clean where we've been soiled. Second thing, mercy restores our joy when we've been broken. David has felt crushed under the, the weight of his guilt. And so in verse 8, he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And David realized that one of the great joys of life was to know that his sins were forgiven. Mercy does that. It allows us to experience joy even when we have fallen. And the third thing is that mercy renews our heart when we've fallen. It makes us clean, restores our joy, and it renews our heart. See, we don't just need God to wipe our, our record clean and say, right, that's forgiven, it's, it's past. We need God to work inside us, don't we? We need transformation inside. Here's what, here's what he says in verse 10 to verse 12. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I think that's just that psalm is just such a, a portrayal, an Old Testament portrayal of what Jesus has come to bring us. Forgiveness and renewal through the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus has come to offer us through the gospel. And here it is, out of the depths of this terrible experience, this terrible story, out of the depths of that, the grace and the mercy of God shines so brightly. The blood of Jesus blots out our sin, and the Holy Spirit comes to renew us and change us from the inside. Now, it struck me once in thinking about this story that when you think about Nathan and what Nathan says to David, David, you are the man. There's an echo or an answer to that in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And it comes when Pilate is at the crucifixion of Jesus. And he brings Jesus out at the time of his trial, brings him out, and he says to everybody, behold the man. And I think that that's what God does, isn't it? You know, he, from, from, from the finger of the prophet saying, you are the man, you're the guilty one. Here is out of the mouth of a Gentile king or Gentile ruler, behold the man. And, and that man takes the place of this man and these men and these women. There's a beautiful touch in relation to the grace of God and in, in what happens later in this story. 
See, the child who was the fruit of the adultery uh, was, uh, uh, did, did not live. But later, verse 24, 25, chapter 12, David and Bathsheba have another son. And here's what it says. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, <clears throat> he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Solomon eventually becomes king. Not without a scare. You need to go to 1 Kings 1 to see what happens there. There's a bit of a scare. Um, and uh, it looks like Adonijah is going to become king. Um, but but uh, Bathsheba uses her influence with David. A little bit of the way you've got you know, Ruth having to act to, 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 to bring about some change for her future, or even Rahab, even Tamar. So, so Bathsheba has to do something. She's got to act in order to protect her own life and the life of Solomon. Because, you see, kingly succession could be very messy in those days. But he becomes king. Solomon. What about that name Jedediah? Do you know what Jedediah means? It means loved by God. You know, if you had to choose your own name, you'd, you'd sort of think that would be, be a pretty good name to have, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be a bit weird in Northern Ireland. There's not too many Jedediahs around. It would be a weird name. But if you could find something that, that, that maybe reflected that, just that you think, goodness, the name that I carry tells me and reminds me that I am loved by the Lord. Such grace that comes. Out of the mess of this story, David's duplicity, his lust, adultery, murder, all of those things, there eventually comes this little baby boy, and his name is Jedediah. And the Lord says, I love that little boy. And he goes on to be king. And isn't Christmas the story of how God has sent to us, I mean, in a way, another Jedediah. This is my beloved son, and him I'm well pleased. He sent us another Jedediah, hasn't he? His name is actually Jesus. But he sent us the son that he loves, who, who is the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he has sent him to us. Why? Because he loves us. And the gospel offers us the love of God that has come to us through God's beloved son. That the invitation of the gospel then is to step into that love that God has for us that is expressed for us through Jesus. The love that sent Jesus, not just sent him to Bethlehem, but the love that eventually sent him to Calvary. Because, as we said at the beginning, the family Jesus came from, goodness, what a family history, eh? The family Jesus came from anticipates the family he came for. And let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, 
you don't eliminate <clears throat> details of stories that, that maybe we would eliminate if, if uh, we were writing our own story. But they're there, Lord. And we just thank you for revealing your grace even through such a terrible story. And thank you that that grace that is, is previewed there in your forgiveness of David and in the birth of Jedediah, Lord, that's grace that has come to us, grace upon grace that has come to us through Jesus, your beloved Son. Father, help us in this moment um, at this Christmas season where whether it's the busyness, whether it's the uncertainty, all of these things that are going on, Lord, help us to be able to have that, that point that we come to where we are able to appreciate and value and praise you for what you've done in sending us Jesus. We pray in his name.